Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for leading us this morning. Revelation 14. And in just a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. One of these days, and it could be soon, Jesus Christ will come back for his children. We call that the rapture. And what will that be like? Well, we don't have to wonder. Jesus told us about it in Luke 17. Just look on the screen and watch these verses. Jesus said, I tell you, on that night. Now, somebody will say, will the rapture come at night? Yes, on one side of the world it will be night. On the other side it will be light, all right? That's because the world is round, okay? (laughs) There will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding, that is grinding at a mill. At the same place, one will be taken and one will be left. Two men will be in the field, obviously working. One will be taken and the other will be left. One will be taken and one will be left. What is that? The rapture. Can you imagine being with someone that is saved and you're not saved and them being taken and you being left behind? When Jesus comes for his church, millions of people will be taken out of this world, but billions of people will be left behind. And those left behind will go through what Jesus called the great tribulation. He talked about that in Matthew 24. And during that time, even during that time, even though it's the most horrific time this earth will ever know, unprecedented suffering, unprecedented violence, unprecedented chaos. If you think COVID-19 is chaotic, the great tribulation will make this look like a cakewalk. And I am not minimizing what's going on now, but I am maximizing what will go on then. And even in the midst of that, God is going to redeem millions of people. and He's going to use 144,000 soul-winning machines They will be the 144,000 Jewish men that get saved, 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they will go all over the world with the protection of God upon them. And no one, not the devil, not demons, not any dictator, not the Antichrist, not the false prophet, nobody will be able to kill them. They will be literally bulletproof, and they will witness, and many, many people will get saved. And then after that, when Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation with His church, you and I are going to come back, and when we are with Him, we're going to come down. Jesus will land exactly from the spot where He took off from, where He ascended, that is the Mount of Olives. He'll come back to the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says in our text today that one of the first things he's going to do when he comes back is to call in all of these 144,000 gospel preachers, gospel missionaries. He's going to call them to the Mount of Zion and he's going to have fellowship with them. That's what we're going to read about today in Revelation 14 verses 1 through 5. I call these 144,000 soul winners the Lamb's Brigade. Look there in Revelation chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, 
and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harp, harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have been, not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, let's look at these 144,000 Jewish men that are going to get saved at, during the beginning of the tribulation. And let's just see a little bit about their lives. First of all, let's note what the text here says about the privilege that they enjoy. They get to be with Jesus. They get to witness about Jesus, and then they get to be with Jesus. Look at verse 1. And then I looked, and behold, the Lamb, that's Jesus, was standing. Now, when Jesus is standing, that's something. Normally, He's sitting on a throne. But when He's standing, He's standing in honor of people, just like He stood in the honor of Stephen. If you go read in the book of Acts, when Stephen was stoned, Jesus stood in His honor. And Stephen saw Him. He said, I see the Son of Man standing. Jesus was standing on the Mount of Zion, and with Him, 144,000. They belong to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. They are His missionaries. He will sovereignly save them. He will sovereignly select them and send them out at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. We first read about the 144,000 soul winners back in Revelation 7 when they got saved. And it talks about that in the first four verses, Revelation 7, 1 through 4. You can follow it on the screen if you'd like to. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Again, God will save these Jewish men at the very beginning of the Great Tribulation, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they will be steadfast witnesses for Jesus Christ. And they are going to be bulletproof. No one can harm them. But people will come, and they will hear them preach and share the gospel, and they will get saved on the spot. Millions of people will be born again during that time. Now, sometimes you'll hear theologians say, well, now, before Jesus can come, the gospel has to go to the whole world. Let me tell you something. There are two comings of Jesus, if you will. There's the rapture, Jesus coming for His church, and then there's the second coming, that is Jesus coming with His church. 
It is true that the gospel must be preached to the whole world before the coming of Jesus with His church, but Jesus can come in the rapture right now, even though there are many people who have never heard the gospel, and He can start the great tribulation anytime He wants to. The Bible says Jesus can come at any moment. We're to be watching for Jesus. We're not to be looking around for the Antichrist. We're to be looking up for Christ. Lift up your eyes, your redemption draweth nigh, Jesus said. So, what he's saying in Matthew 24, 14, when he says this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The end is not the rapture. That just begins our being in heaven with Jesus, and it begins the tribulation. But at the end of the tribulation, that's what he's talking about, the end will come at the end of the great tribulation. And it's during the great tribulation that the great commission to make disciples of everyone is going to be completely fulfilled. Jesus Christ will make sure that everybody gets to hear the gospel during the great tribulation. Now, somebody says, well, if that's the case, then we ought to just wait and let them do it. We ought not to be real excited about evangelism. Well, not so, my friend. One of the last things Jesus said before He went to heaven was this, go therefore and make disciples. That includes sharing the gospel with lost people and winning them to Jesus. You have to make disciples. It's something that they've never been. And once they get saved, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you saw right up there with those precious two twin girls, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When we are sharing the gospel with other people, that is the privilege, just like the 144,000, that is the privilege that we have to tell other people about Jesus. Notice, secondly, the passport that they exhibit. Now, you say, what are you talking about, a passport? Well, they have something stamped on their body. Just like the lost people are going to have the mark of the beast, these guys are going to have a mark on them. And by the way, if you ever travel, you know that before you can enter into any country, you have to have a passport. You can't just say, well, I think I'll just go into England. Well, you'd better have a passport. Well, I think I'll just go into Canada. You'd better have a passport. And not only do they look at your passport, but they stamp it. They stamp it. You've got to have a marked passport to get in. Notice, notice what they have. Look at verse 1, the end of the verse. Having His name, the name of Jesus, the name of the Lamb, and the name of His Father written or engraved or stamped on their foreheads. Now, how many of you were here last week and you heard us talk about the mark of the beast. Anybody out there hear about that? Okay. Here's what I want you to see. The devil imitates God. And last week we talked about the fact that, uh, God, that the devil's people are going to have a mark. And all the devil is doing here, he is imitating what God did with these 144,000. 
If you read back in Revelation 13, 16, and 17, chapter 13, verses 16 and 17, and he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast, that is the uh, the, the beast there, and or the Antichrist, or the na- number of his name. And we know if you read the next verse, the number is 666. So even so, even just, just like the devil's going to have his mark, he's going to number them. Don't forget that. The, the Lord is going to inscribe the name of Jesus and the name of the Father on them. Now, I just want to say, you can tell a little bit about the difference between the devil and God. The devil just numbers his people, but God puts His name on His people. Aren't you glad that you're not just a number to God? Aren't you glad that you're a name to God? Amen. Amen. I saw that, and I got happy in my chair at home when I was reading that. Amen. So, God's name will be engraved on His children's foreheads. I think it's interesting that it's on their foreheads. You know why? Because God made your body to where you are constantly looking at the task of hand. You don't need to be constantly looking around. You don't need to be thinking about the past all the time. Give your past to the Lord. If you've done something you shouldn't have done, learn from it, but then move on. Don't live in it. Move on. Move on. Don't say, oh, I miss the good old days. A lot of those days weren't as good as you think. You're just embellishing those days, all right? My mother said something about it. She said, all these people want to go back to the good old days. She said, the good old days, what are you talking about? I had to scrub on a scrub board. Now I could put clothes in my washer. I used to have to, to clean all those dishes. Now I can put them in the dishwasher. I used to have to walk. Now I can drive in a car. Those good old days, she said, were not as good as Maybe they just don't remember. I want to say this to you. You and I are looking forward to the best days we will ever have, and God wants to put His stamp on the front of our heads so that we will move forward and not think all the time about the good old days, or not looking side by side, comparing ourselves with other people. We don't compare ourselves with other people. We focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we look and we long for Him. That number, or that name rather, is on our heads. God's name is going to be engraved on our heads. And the Bible says that these guys are going to be the Green Beret Christians moving forward in life during the Great Tribulation, and no one can stop them. Now, I had somebody tell me yesterday after I said that last night, they said, are they they going to be Green Berets? Or since it's a SEAL, won't they be Navy SEALs? I said, I don't know what they're going to be, all right? I don't know if they're Army or Navy. I don't know. They're going to be tough, all right? And they're going to have the mark of God on their forehead. Well, Paul talked about the fact that he had been branded by Jesus. He had a mark in his physical body that came upon him by Jesus. I've heard some people just make this thing some real miraculous thing and say, oh, that, must, that was just something supernatural that appeared on the body of Paul. It was not. Paul tells us how he got marked for Jesus. He said in Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear in my body the brand marks, the stigmata of Jesus. And then he says, now listen, in 2 Corinthians 10, 23 through 25, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so in, I've been in far more labors, he says, in far more imprisonments, 
Now listen, he's bragging about how many times he's been to jail. He said, I've been in prison more than they have. And then he says, beaten, now watch this, times without number. He said, I have quit counting how many times I have been beaten for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, often in danger of death. Five times I received the, from the Jews 39 lashes. They would literally take him into their synagogue and take his clothes off of the top part of his body and beat him 39 times with a rod in the synagogue. He said, that happened to me five times. And then he said, three times I have been beaten with rods out in the street by the Gentiles. Now look, some of us think we've had a bad day because somebody said something ugly about us or somebody said something that we didn't like or did something we didn't like and and we're all down in the dumps and we go to the Apostle Paul and said, hey, they talked bad about me. And Paul said, that's all you got? That's all you got? And then we say, well, Paul, how do we know you love God? He said, I'll show you how much I love Jesus. And he would take off his robe and said, look at my back. Look at my back. I don't have to talk about how much I love the Lord. Just look. And we would see a back that had been riddled by being beaten for the Lord Jesus Christ. The next time you think you're going through a tough deal, remember the Apostle Paul. He bore in his body the stigmata, the brand marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friend, I want to say this to you. You need to praise God today that when you repent of your sins, when you turn from your sins and you believe in Jesus, God supernaturally, somehow supernaturally, we can't see it, but He seals you until the day of redemption. He puts a mark on your soul that only He can see. But brother, when you stand before God, you will have your passport already stamped and you're going in. Amen? Because you have been marked by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give Him praise right now for the passport we will exhibit. And then notice thirdly, the praise they express. Oh, they get happy about the fact that they know the Lord. Look at verse 2. And by the way, before we look at verse 2, Christianity is a faith that sings. Uh, We sing. I want you to read with me one of my favorite verses about the fact that Christians are supposed to sing. Colossians 3, 16. Read it with me off the screen, if you would, please. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Here now with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Leave that on the screen. Just a minute. We literally are taught the Word of God when we sing songs about Jesus that are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know what that means? The content of every Christian worship song ought to be based on Scripture. We ought to teach one another, and we ought to worship the Lord, and we ought to sing unto the Lord because He has set us free. The praise that they express. Look at verse 2 now in Revelation 14. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. When heaven saw Jesus, when when heaven sees Jesus one day reigning from Mount Zion, 
and they see the 144,000 soul winning machines around him and they see all of that. Their heaven is going to erupt in praise and somehow that's going to be known and they're going to know it on Mount Zion and all of those 144,000 will erupt in praise. It will be a glorious time. The Bible says that praise will be celestial. It will begin in heaven. A voice from heaven, it says. I heard a voice from heaven. It will come down from heaven into earth and we'll start praising as well. It will be majestic that praise will be. Verse 2 says, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. It will be piercingly loud and thunderous from heaven. We're going to worship the Lord. If you don't like loud worship, don't die if you're a Christian, all right? Because it's going to be loud in heaven. And then it's going to be skillful. Verse 2, the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I get to sit back there during these days, and I get to watch all the musicians. And I want to tell you something. we got some skillful folks up there in all of our worship service. And in heaven, they're going to be playing those harps skillfully before the Lord. And then it's going to be praise that is fresh. The Bible says in verse 3, they will sing a new song before the throne and before the the four living creatures and the elders. And you sing a new song anytime you sing any song about Jesus. It's new because it's coming out of your heart. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Just any song of worship you sing, it's a fresh new song coming from your heart. And anybody, anybody who is a soul winner is going to be a worshiper. If you're a witness, you'll be a worshiper. If you're a soul winner, you'll be a singer because you've got something to worship and to sing about. Paul said this. He's one of the greatest soul winners ever, but he worshiped the Lord. Philippians 3.3, he said, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us, and we put no confidence in the flesh or in human effort. Now, why do people worship the Lord? Why are these 130,000, 44,000 people going to worship the Lord? And why should any person in here who is a witness worship the Lord? Because when we start thinking about Jesus, we can't help but worship Him because He took our place on the cross. We can't help but worship Him because He gave His blood for our forgiveness. We can't help but worship Him because He cried out, it is finished, paid in full. We cannot help but worship Him because when they buried Him, He didn't stay there. He rose from the dead. We cannot stop worshiping Him because He appeared to the disciples and He told them that He was coming back. He ascended to heaven. We cannot stop worshiping Him because right now He is at the right hand of the Father making all of His enemies a footstool for His feet. We cannot stop worshiping Him because He is praying for us right now. Look at me. You're going to make it because Jesus is praying for you and you can't help but worship Him. And let me tell you something. We can't help but worship Him because He's coming back in the rapture and we're going to be taken out of this old sinful world and be with Him forever. We can't help but worship Him because we're going to come back with Him on white horses and we're going to reign with Him for a thousand years. We can't help but worship Him because we're going to be with Him in the new Jerusalem and the new, the new heaven and the new earth. We can't help but worship Him because He changed us and we are different people. We are new creations. We can't help but worship Him, all right? I could give a few more reasons, but I think you get the point. The praise we must express. And number four, the pardon they experience. Oh, they had been pardoned by Jesus. Look at verse three. And no one could learn the song except 
the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. That word purchased there is agorazo, and there's a root word for it. It's agora. And in the Greek time, the agora was the marketplace. Now listen, it was the marketplace where people bought and sold things, where they would redeem things, and they would purchase things. And so what he says here, the only one that can learn this song, it's the song of the redeemed. Those who have been purchased from the earth, purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talked about us being purchased. And by the way, you don't belong to yourself. You have been bought by Jesus. You are his property. He gets to do with you what He wants to do with you, and you're just there, and you're saying, Father, Thy will be done, whatever you want. If you want me up, let me up. If you want me down, let me down. But God, let Your will be done in my life. You've been bought with a price. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought, redeemed, with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You say, well, what was the price? What did my being bought? What did my being redeemed? What did that cost? What I was purchased by God. What did He have to pay? The blood of His Son. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, Verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when I start talking about the blood of Jesus, liberal theologians said, oh, you're one of those, you believe in slaughterhouse religion. You believe Jesus had to shed his blood for forgiveness, and you you don't believe that the death of Jesus was sufficient, but it had to be in a certain way. It had to be with the shedding of blood. I said, you're exactly right, but it's not slaughterhouse religion. It is salvation religion. It is what Jesus said had to happen, and the Bible says, now listen, in Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I've been redeemed. We used to sing a song by Fanny Crosby, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child, now listen, and forever I am. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Have you ever been purchased by God through the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you ever received Him? Have you ever let the blood of Jesus purchase you and redeem you? Have you ever repented of your sins? Have you ever believed in Jesus' saving and atoning death and His bodily resurrection? Have you ever received Jesus and asked Him to come into your life to save you? Oh, friend, that's the pardon you need to experience. Notice, fifthly, the purity that they exude. Oh, these men, they are holy before the Lord. Look at verse 4. These are the ones who have not defiled, been defiled with women, for they have been, they have kept themselves chaste. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were virgins, although the Greek word in that text, chaste, can certainly imply virginity. Whether or not they were virgins, 
They were morally pure. They, if they were not married, yes, they were still virgins. But if they were married, they will have been faithful to their spouses. They kept themselves chaste. And they were preachers who were exuding and giving forth and displaying moral purity. But there was more. They were also truthful. Look at verse 5. And no lie was found in their mouths. These 144,000 were tellers of the truth. If they had said something, you could bank on it. They were truthful. Now, it doesn't mean that they never told a lie. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. But they were the, the, the vast pattern of their lives is they sought to tell the truth. Lies were not found in their mouths. And then the last part of verse 5 gives some people some problems. They were blameless. You say, well, were they sinless? That's not what it says. It says they were blameless. Nobody is sinless but Jesus. But they are blameless because He has redeemed them and forgiven their sins. Hey, look at me. How many of you are saved? Anybody? Anybody out there? Okay. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. That's how many are blameless. You're blameless before God right now. You know why? Because your sins have been taken away. Your sins have been washed. And all the blame for your sin was put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't have to bear it anymore. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. How many of you know that we live in a crooked, perverse generation? Amen. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. If you get saved, God will make you blameless. And boy, we need more purity like that in our churches. That's the purity that we must all exude and display. Notice, sixthly, the person that they esteem. Oh, they love Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. These are the ones who follow. Everybody say follow. follow. Underline that. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Here is a core value of these 144,000 Jewish Christians. They love Jesus wholeheartedly, and they follow Him. Do you remember when Jesus, do you remember when He called his disciples. Everybody listen up. Mark chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And Jesus said to them, follow me. Everybody say that. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets. They followed him. They were followers of Jesus. And then later on, in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus passed by. He saw Levi, that is all, a man also known as Matthew, and we have the first gospel through him. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and he followed Jesus. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to become his disciple. He is your rabbi, and so wherever he leads, you go. Whatever he says, you do. And they did that for three and a half years. They followed the Lord Jesus Christ, and lives were changed. Their lives were changed, and everybody else's lives were changed because they followed the Lord. I want to say this to you. Every Christian ought to be like the people of God that had gotten out of Egypt, the Israelites who had gotten out of Egypt under Moses, and every day they had one job. 
You know what it was? To follow the Lord. To follow the cloud by day or to follow the fire by night. All God said, He said, look, I'm going to take you to the promised land. All you have to do is follow this cloud by day and follow this fire by night. Now look, I understand that sometimes we like to plan our future. And, you know, nowadays that's a big deal in business. We want a five-year plan. How many of you know that most of us don't know what's going to happen in five months, much less five years? Amen? So you say, well, I want a plan. I want a plan. Can you imagine somebody coming up to Moses, walking up to his tent and saying, Moses, what's your five-year plan? What's your five-year plan? I can just see Moses saying, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, what's your five-year plan? Well, I don't understand. Well, what are you going to be doing five-year? I don't five-year plan. I don't have a five-minute plan. I've got this plan. You see that cloud over there? I'm following that cloud. I've been following that cloud for years. You see that cloud? When that cloud goes, I go. When that cloud stays, I stay. Plan, my plan is to follow God. Now look at me. We want to have a plan. We don't need a plan. We need to follow Jesus. That's your plan, all right? Every day you wake up, you read your Bible, every day you pray, and you don't know what this day has in store. It Look at me. I want to give you say, well, don't, don't tell me this. I'm going to tell you anyway. This may be the last day you have on this earth. You don't know anything beyond this. This is, look. This is the moment you have. This is the day God has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Let's don't waste our lives moaning for the past or worrying about the future. Don't let the devil steal the good memories away of the past. And don't let him steal away the present time right now when you need to be living for the Lord. The best way to plan for the future and the best way to redeem the past is to do the right thing today. Follow Jesus right now and God will bless you. Can I have an amen in the house of God? Amen. Now I love hymns. I go back and listen to them all the time. I was raised on hymns. Here's one that I hope you'll be blessed by. Down in the valley with my Savior I will go where the flowers are blooming and the sweet waters flow. Everywhere He leads me I will follow, follow on, walking in His footsteps till the crown be won. Now sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's wonderful. Sometimes following Jesus can be dreadful too. It can be scary. Down in the valley with my Savior I will go where the storms are sweeping and the dark waters flow. With His hand to lead me I will never, never fear. Danger cannot frighten me if my Lord is near. So down in the valley or upon the mountain steep, close beside my Savior will my soul ever keep. He will lead me safely in the path that He has trod up to where the, they gather on the hills of God. Follow, follow. I will follow Jesus anywhere, everywhere. I will follow on. Follow, follow. I will follow Jesus everywhere He leads me. I will follow on. We are living in crazy days, but I want to tell you something. You keep your eyes on Jesus just like they kept their eyes on that cloud, and you follow Him. You follow the Lord. Jesus called these 144,000 to follow Him, and He's called you to follow Him. 
That's what Christianity is. It is a real living relationship and all you have to do to make things turn out right is to follow Jesus Christ. Oh, praise His name. Praise His name. The person that you must esteem and follow. And then finally, the precedent that they exemplify. They are going to be the first fruits of many people that get saved. Look there in verse 4. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits. Everybody say first fruits. First fruits to, the, to God and to the Lamb. What is first fruits? Whenever they would give a har- get a harvest out in the Old Testament, they would get the best of the harvest, the first of the harvest, and they'd bring it to God. They take a tenth out of it of the best harvest they've got, whatever it might be, and they would bring it to God. If it was grain, if it was something else, they'd just bring it to God. Now, what were they doing when they did that? They were saying, Lord, you own it all. You own it all. It's all yours. So what we're going to do, Lord, we're going to take this this tenth, we're going to take this out, and we're going to give it to you. We're going to give you the first fruits of the harvest Because if it wasn't for you, Lord, we wouldn't even have a harvest. We wouldn't have anything to harvest with. We wouldn't have any reason to harvest. Lord, you're everything. You own everything. So we give this to you. It's just to remind them that God owned everything. Now watch. He said, these have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So whenever they would give those first fruits, God would bless and they'd have more to come. God would just keep on blessing. The more they gave the first fruits, God just kept on blessing. Then they give some more first fruits. God just kept on blessing. That's the way it works. So here it is. These guys are going to be the first fruits. What does that mean? They're going to get saved and sealed, and then they're going to go out, and they're the first fruits of millions of people that are going to get saved during the Great Tribulation. They're the offering, if you will. They, it all belongs to God, but they are the first fruits, and God is going to let them be that special offering. I want to ask you, will you be the first fruits in your family? Some of you may be the first person that got saved in your family. You know what? A lot of other people can get saved now because you can take the gospel to them. You say, oh, but Brother Steve, it's hard to witness to my family members. Well, that's just because they know you real well, okay? But don't worry about that. Go on and share the gospel with them. And you know what? When somebody gets saved, I don't think God just saves them. I think He wants to save their whole family. Think about the trajectory that you can leave in this world. If you'll just be a witness just to your family and your close associates, I'm telling you, you can be the first fruits of many people that will be born again if you will just follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friend, is what we're talking about with the precedent that they exemplify. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to snatch out of this world all of His children And then the seven years of tribulation will start. At the beginning of that seven years, he's going to go and he's going to save, sovereignly save, 12,000 Jewish men out of all 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to set them apart. He's going to seal them. And then he's going to make sure that even the devil himself cannot kill them. And they're going to go all over the world. If you're alive in the tribulation means you're not saved right now. 
The Bible says that they're going to go all over the world. They're going to tell people about Jesus and millions will get saved. Many of, most of those people will get martyred, but these will not get martyred. But they show us that even in the worst of times, even in the great tribulation, praise God, God is going to have his remnant. And one of these days, just like a victorious athletic team, just like a victorious army, they're going to stand around their commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Mount Zion. And I believe that you and I will be there to witness it. We're going to witness what happens here. This is not sequential in time. John just went way ahead just to, just to give you a little bit of encouragement. He'd been talking about the mark of the beast and the Antichrist and all that stuff. He said, now, just let me remind you that at the end of it all, Jesus is going to have the 144,000, and we're all going to be there on Mount Zion worshiping Jesus for a thousand years and then for all eternity. Let's give God praise that in the end, all is going to be well. Amen. Amen. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of studying about these wonderful 144,000 soul winners. And Father, we thank you, Lord God, that even during the great tribulation, you're going to have a witness and you're going to have your way. Father, if there's anybody here who has not been marked by the name of Jesus Christ in salvation, I pray that right now they would give their hearts to Christ. With our heads still bowed before we sing our final worship song, I want to ask you, will you today call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? I've done this for 40-something years, and many people have received Christ. When I just lead them in a prayer, and I use this analogy all the time, it's like me leading a young couple in their wedding vows. But if you will pray and in that prayer, if you'll repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and receive Him, He will save you. If you'd like to do that, up in the balcony on this main floor, would you do it right now? Pray something like this. And, and I feel like I want to say this before I lead you. Some of you are thinking, Brother Steve, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But Jesus does. And I know what He has done. He has died on the cross for your sins. And there is no sin too bad that Jesus' blood can't redeem it. Don't let the devil tell you you can't be saved. Pray with me right now. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I believe you are the only Savior. So right now, Lord, I repent. Help me, Lord. Help me to turn from my sin and to turn to you. And I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead and you're alive. And I receive you I call upon your name. Save me right now, Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you by faith, not by feeling, 
but by faith that you have done so. And I give you praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen.